Good morning, everyone. Thank you for uh, being with, <clears throat> with us today. If you would take your Bibles and open to Matthew 22, Matthew chapter 22, and we're going to be working through uh, verses 1 through 14. And uh, before I get to reading that passage to us, I wanted to make note of a couple of things that I will likely forget later. First of all, children, uh, if you will take notice of the blast zone, I will endeavor to uh, assist you in that. There are some key words I'm supposed to say. I'm trying to remember them. They're right in the story, so I would have to work hard not to, but it happens. So um, I encourage you uh, to uh, uh, follow along with that and then meet with Miss Brianna over here at the end of the service, and she will chat with you about what you learned. And I know she loves uh, going through... Uh, the blast zone with the kids that, that come and talk about what they learned and, and uh, what stood out to them and, and uh, whatnot. So that's a, that's a great opportunity there. And then um, secondly, I wanted to remind everyone of our evening service tonight, uh, 6 o'clock over in the fellowship hall. And uh, that's a great time of singing and, uh, and having uh, the word preached in a, in a much um, smaller context. And it's great to to uh, come together at the end of uh, the day and, and do that once again. So I would encourage you for that. And then we will take off the next couple of weeks from uh, Sunday school as well as taking off from evening service. And so I wanted to remind you of that. And of course, the reminder about the, uh, the uh, Christmas Eve candlelight service. I'm looking forward to that. And um, you kind of have to get here early so you can get a spot because the more people show up and you end up you know, back in the corner and you're not used to that or whatever. So uh, get here early for that. Uh, what a great time for us to be able to sing together, to prepare ourselves for the next day, Christmas Day, and what that all means. And so uh, be in prayer for that, and we look forward to uh, having you here with us for that. So today, Matthew chapter 22, I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 14. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off one to his farm, another to his business while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry and sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we join together in prayer this morning and bow before you. 
We worship you today. There is none like you. You alone are God. And so we worship you and we praise you also that you have made yourself known to us. Not leaving us to cast about in the dark and imagine what you must be like. But instead you have spoken to us. You have given us your word which communicates truly who you are and who we are and how we can know you. Beyond that, you have communicated to us by means of your son who was born as a baby that we celebrate this time of year, who became one of us. We rejoice that you have communicated yourself to us, not just informing us from your word, but savingly in your son, Jesus. Father, we are grateful also that you have sent your spirit to dwell within us. And he who ministers your word to us, we ask that he would minister indeed today in our time. As we open your word, as we talk about what we read here, may you do your work in our hearts. Father, we confess that we need you. We need your work in our lives, and we ask that you would do it even in these next few minutes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our family, of course, lived in Russia for a few years, and uh, Russians are known for a lot of things, and one of the things is that they really like to celebrate. They love to celebrate, they love to feast, and um, if you, you know, we you have to go through certain... Um, rituals of finally and ultimately communicating that really, no, I really am done eating and there's no more room in here. And so you've got to find ways to communicate that and stuff because they love to feast and they love to celebrate. And one of the things that was odd was that they don't really celebrate Christmas uh, culturally, not like we do. And uh, during the Soviet times, the uh, Christmas had kind of been phased out. Of course, there was the Soviet uh, battle against uh, Christianity and against the Bible, and so they, they would celebrate New Year's, and that was their big celebration, yeah, but not Christmas so much. And so maybe some Christians would maybe have a party or something like that, but even that uh, wasn't really, didn't really stand out. And so when they saw the way Americans like to celebrate Christmas with all the decoration, with all the food, with all the things that we do, uh, it kind of stood out to them. And I don't know if it's just this time of year, and I get used to eating more or whatnot, but I kind of have feasting on the brain. And uh, this this morning, I'm not alone, I guess, huh? This morning in our Sunday school class, we talked about um, the feast that the woman wisdom has prepared from Proverbs chapter 9. And today, we're talking about another feast. And uh, the feast that we're talking about today is, uh, I think it has direct application to Christmas time. Because we gather at Christmas time, don't we? We gather and we feast and we celebrate Jesus and we, we remember um, what he has done and him being born as a little baby coming into uh, this life as one of us and yet um, doing so in order to redeem us. And so we celebrate that, but that reminds me of this feast from this passage here. And so I want to um, kind of get up to speed in Matthew about what's going on in the book of Matthew so that we can dive into our parable here. It's always important when a parable is told, you want to look at the context in which it was told and you can uh, glean from it, uh, therefore, kind of what it means. And so as we look back to get a running start 
at uh, what's going on in the book of Matthew, we can see the beginning of chapter 21 of Matthew that uh, we have the triumphal entry of Jesus. And we see that the crowds are extremely supportive, right? And so um, you have you have this great outpouring of support for Jesus by the crowds. And then after that, you have Jesus going into the temple and him cleansing the temple. And by doing so, he was... Um, you know, declaring that what was going on there was not as it should be. And so, of course, the, the, uh, the, the priests are indignant about what Jesus has done. He's come on the scene, and he has, he's, he's gaining favor with the crowd, but with the priests, he's being insulting because he cleanses the temple. And, and so we see that uh, he's walking by, traveling by this fig tree, and this fig tree is in leaf, so it ought to have fruit on it. But he examines and he sees that actually there's not fruit on this tree. And so he actually curses it and it withers right there. Right. And that's a picture. That's not just Jesus, you know, getting mad at an inanimate object. He's portraying in what goes on there, what is happening in the nation of Israel, that there is leaf, there ought to be fruit, and yet there is no fruit. And so right after that, you have the chief priests and the elders are challenging Jesus' authority there in verses 23 and following. And so there's becoming more and more of a conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day. And so on the heels of that, he tells the parable in, uh, in, in 21 there, in verse 28, he tells the parable of the two sons. And the question is, which one of the two sons did the will of the father? Was it the one when the father said, go do this thing, and the son says, okay, I'll do that, but then didn't do it? Or was it the other son that is told, go do that thing? And the son says, no, I'm not going to do it. But then in the end, he comes around and he goes back and he obeys the father. And so the question is, which of the two did the will of the father? Well, it was the one who actually did it, not just the one who said it. And so you've got the parable of the sons. And then right after that, you've got a, a parable of the tenants, right? And so you've got the the owner of this uh, the vineyard and he's prepared it and all this stuff and he leases it out to tenants and when it comes time to gather the fruit for him to receive his payment they won't yield his fruit they won't give it to him instead they mistreat and they kill the messengers including killing the, the, the owner's own son so the owner takes away the vineyard and he judges those first servants and then he gives the, the vineyard to tenants who will deliver its fruit in time and so you have all this that's being taught, all that's going on in, uh, in the ministry of Jesus here. And, and at, the, at the conclusion of chapter 21, we read that the chief priests and the Pharisees, when they heard these parables, they perceived that he was talking about them. And they were indignant. They got what was going on. They understood the point of what Jesus was saying and that it had to do with them. And they weren't the heroes of the story. They were the ones who received judgment in the story. So with that background and, and understanding what's going on in Jesus' ministry and, and all that's happening there, we come to our parable uh, today, the parable of the wedding feast. And so we see, first of all, in the first four verses there, we see that the invitations are sent out, right? Jesus spoke to them another parable saying, the kingdom of heaven, which is what he's talking about, may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. 
Right? So he sends out the initial invite. He says, we're going to have a wedding feast. My son is going to get married and it's going to be a wonderful occasion. Please come and join us for this feast. And so he sends that out, but they would not come. So the initial invites are sent out, but they're rejected. So then the day of the feast comes and what happens? The king sends out his servants again saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. It's today. Now's the time. The table is set. You can smell the food wafting down the street. Now's the time. Show up. Come on. Come to the wedding feast. And so you have those initial invitations being sent out. And so you can, you can kind of see that this sort of fits in with the parables that have been told before, that there are those who have been invited already, but... But they initially, they just reject. But then uh, this time they receive the stronger invitation. And what do they do? We see not just a rejection, but a hostile rejection. Verse 5, but they paid no attention. Then they went off, one to his farm and another to his business. So some of them, they received the invitation. It's feast day. You know, don't you see the celebration going on? It's all decorated. It's all prepared. You received the invitation. Now is the time. Show up. And some of them say, well, you know, I've, I've got work to do. I'm, I'm busy, right? So they go to their farm and they go take care of business. They're, they're taking care of their own life, their own things that are going on because that's important. It's more important to them than what the king has going on, this, this wedding feast. And while the rest seized his servants. So some just reject it. Say, I'm busy. I can't be bothered. But others do much worse than that. They seized his servants, they treated them shamefully, and they killed them. Right, so he's telling a parable. And this is a similar parable that's informing what's going on, that we have looked what came before, that, that who are the people who received the initial invitation? Well, it was the nation of Israel, and particularly it was the leadership, the religious leadership had received the invitation. They were the ones who had been entrusted with the care of God's people. They were the ones who had been entrusted with ministering God's word and preparing the nation to receive their king, the Messiah, when he came. But instead of doing that, instead of responding that way, they, they just ignore or they actually kill the prophets that are sent to them. And so the king, how's he going to respond? Verse 7, the king was angry, understandably. And he sent his troops and he destroyed those murderers and he burned their city. So his response to those who killed his messengers, they ignored his message, they killed his messengers, his response is uh, retaliation. He kills them. And it says he actually burns their city. And so it's not going well for the initial uh, people who received the invitations. And frankly, uh, you know, if you look at it from the perspective of the king, he's got this feast prepared. He's, he's ready to celebrate. It's his son's wedding. He wants to throw a party and no one will come to his party. And so, what is he going to do? Well, we see in verse 8 that actually he expands the guest list. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready. Those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. We're going to have a feast. 
There are going to be people sitting at those tables. There are going to be people celebrating with my son. And it wasn't the original ones. They didn't want to participate. So we're going to extend the invitation list broadly. Go and find all that you can. Far and wide. And bring in those from far and wide to participate. So he expands that guest list. Go to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found. They obeyed as many as they could get. Directing everybody, you know, you, you know where the king's palace is. Let's go and we're, it's feast day and, and go there. And, let's, and he's, he's inviting people everywhere. They gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So it wasn't just the really worthy ones. It wasn't just the really exceptional ones. The really good guys, the ones who were uh, who, who were good or had favor of the king or whatever. Everybody was invited. The invitation goes broadly. So the wedding hall was filled with guests, as it ought to be. Here you've got the king, and it's his son's wedding day, and he wants to celebrate. He wants to have this giant feast and invite all of these people. And now, finally, having invited everybody in, the feast hall is filled with guests. But then the story takes an interesting turn at this point. When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. He said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Many are called, but few are chosen. So you've got this situation with a party crasher who, who shows up and he's there at the feast. He's sitting right next to other people. The other people apparently don't notice something different about him. He's sitting there, and he's, he's waiting for the feast to start, and the king comes along. And the king is probably greeting his guests, and he's welcoming them, and, and he's probably, you know, talking about how beautiful the, the wedding is, and how, how lovely the bride is, and it is, isn't his son a strapping young man, and, and uh, he's, talking, he's, he's talking with the guests, and then he runs across one that catches his eye. And in his scrutiny of this guest, he realizes... There's something wrong. There's something lacking in this guest. He's not dressed right. He's not dressed for the feast. And so when, uh, when the king questions him about this, he doesn't have an answer. You've been questioned, I'm sure. Someone asks you a hard question maybe that you've never thought of. Or maybe it's someone asks you the question that's your particular area of weakness and you knew that was a problem and they ask that very thing and you're kind of left with no answer. I remember when I was in college and I was studying Greek and I, my professor uh, in, in this Greek class was one of my favorite professors 
ever, and uh, he, he was just a mentor to all of his students, and I really loved him and respected him and, and, and wanted you know him to be pleased with me as a student, and he asked a question, and uh, it was right after Christmas break, and you know how break time is at school. You were busy learning a bunch of stuff, and then you went on Christmas break, and you feasted for two or three weeks, and you forgot everything you learned, right? And you came back, well, it was right at the beginning of the winter and uh, right after Christmas time, and he asks me this particular thing about Greek that was some touchy little thing that I should have known, and I froze. And I had that look on my face, right? And the, the brain was working, the computer was running in the background, but there was nothing here. And so he couldn't tell if I was searching for an answer, if I fell asleep, he had no idea. And so he stared at me for a while, and I was sitting there thinking, 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 and I got nothing, right? So he moves on to the next guy very mercifully, right? It's no fun to be put on the spot like that and have no answer. And here is this guest. And the king comes along and asks him, Friend, how did you get in here dressed like that? And he had no answer. Face probably went blank. His mind was probably churning, but he had nothing. Couldn't come up with an answer. He was speechless. And so, of course, the king... Sends him away to judgment. Bind him hand and foot. Cast him out. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then, of course, he makes his statement. For many are called, but few are chosen. Which I think in this context means the call goes out far more broadly. Goes out to a, a much broader population than those who will actually be present at the feast. I think that's what that statement means. So, that's the parable. Now, how do we break it down? How do we translate it, right? Because it's a parable, it's a story. How do we uh, break it down into what Jesus means by it? Well, first of all, clearly, God is the king, right? God is the king and Jesus is the son. And the wedding feast... Remember, this whole thing is about a, a wedding feast for the Son. The wedding feast is the, the heavenly celebration of the Son and His union with His bride, the church. Right? It's talking about glory. It's talking about heaven. It's talking about a final state of feasting with God. Right? And so you've got this wedding feast that is glory. It is our eternity with God in bliss, feasting with Him, as it were. Well, who are the first group to receive the invitations? Well, it's most likely it's the nation of Israel. Or maybe you could be more specific that it was the Jewish leaders. Those who had been entrusted with the religion. The, entrusted with the Bible. Entrusted with the temple. Entrusted with the ministry. Entrusted with ministering God's word to God's people. Maybe we could narrow it down and, and get to that point. Maybe it's the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees. They were the ones who were invited first. They were the ones who had that, that privilege, that position. If you're the first one that gets the invitation, that's a great thing, right? But then, of course, Jesus is saying, you're rejecting me. You're in the process of rejecting me. That's the struggle that's been going on. The people are happy to have Jesus. Now, that's going to change, and there are problems with uh, the people's acceptance of Jesus and their expectations and all of that stuff. But the scribes and the priests and the Pharisees, they were dead set against him. They didn't want him. 
And so they were in the process of rejecting him. And actually, they, they have been rejecting God's messengers variously throughout the history of the Old Testament. You had prophets show up and get mistreated for being God's prophets. Think about Jeremiah and his woes, how he, he lived out many of his days in the bottom of a well. Treated so by the religious establishment in Israel. And so uh, you have some of the, some of the messengers being uh, mistreated, some of the messengers being killed right up to and including, though the story is not primarily about that, but it's about Jesus himself will be utterly rejected by them. And actually, uh, what's going to happen? What's going to be the response? Well, the king musters his troops and sends them out to kill those murderers and to burn their city. Well, what's going to happen just two chapters later in, in uh, Matthew is Jesus is going to be talking about when Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, when it's going to be burned, when, when their city is going to be destroyed. And so you've got this terrible woe being pronounced uh, while at the same time, at the same time, though the initial invitation is rejected and it's, it's resulted in all of that catastrophe, yet it has also resulted in the gospel going out broadly. The invitation to the feast has gone out very, very broadly. Uh, so the gospel call goes into all the world. And so that's, that's the basic message of the parable itself, which, of course, uh, encourages us, should encourage us at this point. First of all, the gospel call is for good and bad. It wasn't just for the exceptional ones. Go and find the really spiritually elite Go bring them in. Go and find the ones who are who are extra educated in uh, in doctrine, or find those who are uh, have have just superior humility, and bring them in. The invitation goes to the good and the bad, for which I give thanks, because I wasn't the good. The gospel came to me even as a bad one, as one who was mired in sin. We would expect the invitation. This is a royal invitation by the king that the invitation will go to the upper echelon, not to the unwashed masses, but to those who were, were extra good, those who were in positions of power or, or prestige or, or had shown themselves to be excellent. The gospel goes to me, too. One who is a sinner. The gospel comes to you. One who is a sinner. So that might catch us off guard a little bit. But it goes to both bad and good. In fact, uh, w one thing I want us to learn from this is that you are not too bad for God to save. In fact, one of the requirements for salvation is that you first be a sinner. So... Are you a sinner? Do you recognize that you are among the bad, not among the good? Well, that's good. That means that you qualify. The message goes out to the bad and to the good. There is no one who is too bad for God to save. There's another point to make in here. We we'll want to notice that the initial call to Israel by Jesus was rejected, and so then the call was extended more broadly. And how does that apply to you and to me? What does that, what does that mean for us in this day and age? 
Well, some of you have rejected the gospel call. Some of you have been invited and you decided not to go to the feast. If you continue to reject the call, there may come a time when you have heard the call for the last time. And it will move on to someone else. And I, I, I don't wish that on anyone. My, my desire is, and I know every Christian's desire is, that everyone respond to that call to come to the feast. Join in that feast. There's another question. What's the deal with the man who was invited to the feast? He was seated in the hall right next to other people who were feasting. You know, the, the, the trays were being brought out and the food was being distributed. Right then the king came along and says, friend, how did you get in here dressed like that? What's the deal with that guy? How do we interpret that aspect? Well, here's, here's how I understand it. The feast represents being in God's presence in heaven. There will be some who are invited to the feast... They heard the call to attend the feast. They made uh, all, the, all the other um, you know, meetings leading up to the feast. They were at church. They sat right beside us. Right? They, were, uh, they seemed like they were going the same exact place we were. They were properly seated at the table. They were ready to feast with us in glory. But then the king comes along and he examines him. I want, I want you to notice one thing. It wasn't the other guests around him saying... You don't smell so great, buddy. You should have showered before you came to the feast. Or don't you know we're all supposed to wear this color and not that color? Or don't you know we're supposed to dress a certain way? It wasn't the people sitting around him who said that. The people sitting around him aren't even a part of the story. They apparently don't have anything to say about the way he's dressed. It's the king. He comes along and he looks at him and he fixes him with his eyes. And he says, friend... How did you get in here dressed like that? It was the king who recognized that he was not clothed the way he ought to be. It was the king who examined him and saw that he was not dressed as he ought to be dressed. And thus he was ejected. So what does that mean? Well, first of all, it means that you and I don't have the ability to examine one another to see exactly who's dressed appropriately and who's not. We don't have that ability. It's the king who does that. And it's the king who sees right to the heart. You and I see outward appearance. You and I see behavior. We see attitudes, expressions on the face. We see all that kind of stuff. But we cannot see the heart. We don't have the capacity to do so. It's the king who examines the heart. And in this case, someone was invited to the feast... And he even showed up. But in his heart, there was something lacking. And something only the king could see. And what that was, is that he was not dressed appropriately. What does that mean? He wasn't dressed appropriately. Well, here's what it means. You and I will have a day when we stand before God. The day of judgment. When we will give an account, we will be in, we will be examined for our obedience to God, and we will be punished for our disobedience to God. If I were to stop speaking right now, that should be scary, because I know my behavior, I know my life, I know what I've done, and I know what I deserve. I would deserve judgment. I deserve to be bound with this guy and thrown into the outer darkness. 
So when that time of judgment comes, there are two options. You will either stand there and answer for yourself, for what you've done in obedience or disobedience to God. And if you think about that in preparation, if you think about the kinds of questions that God might ask in that situation, you would realize that it's not just, did you go to church on Sunday? It's not just, did you pay a tithe? It's not just, uh, were you nice to people? Or did you avoid, uh, you know, sexual immorality? Or did you avoid, you know, uh, actually murdering someone? The questions will go right to the heart. What were your heart attitudes? Why did you not murder that person? Well, it's because I didn't want to get in trouble with the law. Well, you committed murder in your heart already. You just tried to escape judgment on this earth. And we will see that the, the sin that's in our heart will be revealed. And so when you're standing there and, and, and God is asking the questions, one option, one, one thing that will happen is that many will give an account for themselves. They will have to stand or fall on their own merit. And friend, if you want to try to stand or fall on your own merit, you will fall. And you will be bound hand and foot and you will be cast out like this guest who wasn't clothed appropriately. He was, he showed up in his own clothes. He showed up in his own righteousness. And God's expectation is not that we have a little bit of righteousness or even a lot of bit of righteousness. His expectation is perfect righteousness. So if this is option A, I want nothing to do with that. And this guest who found himself seated was examined by God and found to be wanting, found to be dressed in his own righteousness. And the king says, why are you dressed like that? You can't be in here if that's the way you're dressed. So how should we be dressed? What would, how, would, how would the king have us be dressed? Well, I said one option is we stand before God and be examined and be judged based upon our own merit. And friend, this is the glory of the gospel, is that Jesus Christ, whose birth we celebrate this time of year, this is why this is a Christmas sermon, because we celebrate this. This is every time we get together and every time we talk about Christmas, every time we preach about Christmas and we and we sing about Christmas and give gifts to one another, we're talking about the invitation to the feast. And I want every one of us to be seated at the feast. And when the king comes by and he chats with you about isn't the son a strapping lad? Isn't he a wonderful groom? And isn't the bride beautiful? I don't want him to look at any of us and say, why are you dressed like that? So Jesus comes on the scene and he's, he's born as a little baby. He's born as one of us, born of a virgin, born under the law, but he obeyed perfectly. From the heart to a T, he obeyed God perfectly, fulfilling the law in its entirety. Well, the law demands that those who break the law receive punishment. And so he went to the cross to receive punishment, not for anything he had done, but for what I've done. To take that upon himself, to, to pay that fully to the end so that he would fulfill the law even in that aspect, paying the penalty for my sin. All the way to death. Was buried. Was raised on the third day. And the Bible says that if we will look to Jesus by faith, 
if we will trust in him, what happens is what we call a great exchange. Where my sin is placed upon Jesus and executed in him. But that would leave me wanting. That would leave me naked. I mean, at least I'm not wearing dirty clothes. But I wouldn't be dressed at all. And that's not the way we go to wedding feasts. I need to be clothed appropriately, not just not just not wearing nasty clothes. I need the right clothes. And so the fact that my sin is executed in Jesus just means my old rags, my old clothes have been put away, but I need something clean and right to wear. That's the other part of the exchange. By faith in Christ, his righteousness, his full and perfect obedience is is clothed around me, as it were. It's counted to be mine. So that when the king comes along to make small talk with me, he will be utterly pleased with the way I'm dressed. 100% pleased with the way I'm dressed because I'm dressed in the righteousness of Christ. And so that's how we can be dressed appropriately. That is how this person found himself seated there, under examination by the king, dressed inappropriately. Well, some of us may be trying to get into the feast and, 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 and attend based upon our own merit. Or maybe it's, you know, 95% Jesus merit, because, you know, why not? I mean, why would you pass that up, right? But I need to add my own 5% or 1% or one-tenth of a percent or some percent has to come from me, right? You will be dressed inappropriately. You must have the righteous and pure garments of Jesus clothed about you so that when the examination comes and the small talk is had with the king, if the king actually has small talk, I have no idea. I don't know what God is going to talk with us about in glory. But when he comes around to your table and he's talking with you about the glory of the son and the beauty of the bride, you will amen. You will receive his welcome and his blessing. You'll receive his smile because you're clothed as you ought to be clothed. I want to notice finally that the king keeps calling people in until the hall is full. He didn't just say, well, I've got enough food here for, you know, a hundred or whatever. He just keeps bringing people in. He's the king. His hall is big enough. He's got enough food. Okay. He's not going to run out. You've gone to parties and they've run out of food before. That's never fun, right? There will, there will be no shortage of food. So he keeps bringing people in, keeps inviting them in, keeps sending out his servants until the hall is packed out. But friend, what if the party starts before you've responded? What if you've been sitting on your invitation, debating? Well, I've got the thing going on in my business. I've got the stuff I need to be doing. I don't know. What if that party starts and you haven't responded yet? You need to respond and respond today. The invitation is being given right now. You need to respond today and look to Jesus and find that your sin is placed upon him and executed. Find that his righteousness is given to you, applied to your account, clothed about you, and you're ready for the feast. You need to respond today. And Christians, you need to keep giving out the invitations until the party starts. 
Don't sit on your invitations. You know, you were you, know, you were sent home with a, a packet of invitations and, you know, you're supposed to give them out by Tuesday or whatever. You remember selling chocolates for school or, or raffle things for baseball and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it comes the day before the raffle and you've got 82 raffle tickets left and you go to your dad and say, you know, I, need, I was supposed to have sold these, right? Don't be like that. We've got these invitations and they're free. Give them out. Share the gospel broadly. And keep doing so repeatedly. Don't get tired. Keep pursuing that. Sharing the gospel, giving out the invitation until the party starts. So that the hall will be full. The hall will be packed out. So that the sun will be celebrated. Every time we celebrate Christmas, we are discussing our invitations to that great feast with the king and with his son in glory. The invitations have gone out far and wide, even all the way to Fallon, America. Praise God for that. And it continues to go out. And it goes out to far corners of the world uh, that have names we can't pronounce. Little islands that we couldn't find on the map or, or uh, backwater places in the, in the mountains somewhere that, that you don't even know what country they're in. And they don't even know what country they're in. The gospel continues to go far and wide into those places to invite them in. Oh yeah, you too. Come in. Join the feast. The only requirement for admission is that we be clothed properly. Proper clothing is that we must be arrayed in the righteousness of Christ. Christmas is when we celebrate that we get to have a seat at the Son's wedding feast, merited simply by what He, Jesus, the Son of God, has done for us, and which is made ours by faith alone. That's what Christmas is about. So, as Christians, we are the only ones who can really understand what we mean when we say Merry Christmas. And so I say to you today, Merry Christmas. We are looking forward to the feast. And frankly, it has started even some ways now. The Lord has prepared his dinner. His oxen, his fatted calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Let's go and partake. Let's jump in and feast at this great feast of the King. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the righteousness of Christ. My own is inadequate. My own righteousness, no matter how much I could clean up my life, no matter uh, how much I could uh, change and, and, and live uh, obediently, it would be inadequate. First of all, I would still have yesterday's sins. And frankly, I would continue to have sins into the future. My righteousness is inadequate. But the righteousness of Jesus Christ clothes me. And so I can go to that feast and sit there and talk with the king. And under his greatest, closest scrutiny, he will be utterly pleased with how I am clothed. Because of Jesus. Thank you for Jesus, whose birth we celebrate at Christmas time. So when we give gifts to one another, may we be reminded of that righteousness that is the gift from Jesus to us. We celebrate Jesus today. And may our parties be centered around Jesus and celebrating Him. May our celebrating in this next week be glorious in your sight as we celebrate how wonderful is your Son. And acknowledge how beautiful is your bride.
the church because of what Jesus has done. And we pray in his name. Amen. There's going to be a family up here to pray with you. Uh, if you want to come forward and pray, particularly about being clothed appropriately in the righteousness of Christ. Children, if you want to meet over here with Miss Brianna, that would be fabulous. And uh, these words before we go from Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. God bless you all, and you are dismissed.